gather, come gather, friends, close by the fire, and hear of a wondrous tale. Of goblins and elves and miscoated dells, and heroes who strive to prevail. After breaking their fast, our heroes set out, as dawn shimmered gold in the woods. They came to the border, double-checked all was in order, and for a hot second awkwardly stood. You're listening to Alley Odds and the Alley Odds Squad by Leona Cara. Chapter 10, The Lair of Joe and Graham. You've got your map. It's in my pack. And your dagger. It's on my belt. And you've got your snack. Yes, Mom. I'm fine. Good. Right. Trenia and I shuffled our feet at the edge of the Elfwoods, where the towering forest abruptly gave way to conventional oak, ash, maple, and elm, which looked comically small beside the behemoths of the left. It was a warm morning. Dew sparkled on the maple buds, and the blue sky promised a beautiful day. A narrow path meandered north from here, towards the human village of Harrowdell. On the walk up, Trinia told me she used to spend a fair bit of time there. Aunt Narvin had trained her at Herblor, so along with serving her community value as a border patroller, Trinia took on some of Aunt Narvin's value by selling herbs at Harrodelf's annual harvest festival. She'd served as an ambassador of sorts, training elven medicine as a gesture of goodwill in accordance with the treaties. Such neighborliness coincidentally discouraged humans from wandering into Beleth on rogue foraging missions, only to end up ensnared by the guard, at which point Trinia, in her role as head of border patrol, would have to escort them out. But most of Trenia's time in Harrowdelf was owed to Laurel, who grew up there and worked as a blacksmith. It's the place where they met, during one of Trenia's herb trading expeditions. It's the place where they parted, at the behest of their parents. And it was a place she might never visit again, depending on what came to pass in the Huti Thaliam. Good luck with your meeting, I said. Thank you. I don't want to influence your decision at all. You know, it's your choice to make, but you should come with me. (laughs) I appreciate that but I need to see this through. Trenia grew suddenly sheepish. Um, yeah? Listen, when you're in Harrowdelf, would you do me a favour? Sure, what is it? Well, if it comes up in conversation, naturally, of course, I I don't want you to force anything. Could you ask after Laurel? Maybe you could find out what happened, why she left so suddenly. I don't think it would change anything, but I'd like to know she's well. But don't be obvious about it, of course. Don't mention you know me, or... I got it, I got it. I know how to charm my way around a question. Thank you. Here. Trenia pulled out a shiny golden crown from the pocket of her outlander pants and held it out to me. Hopefully this will help. People tend to have a looser tongue when there's gold on the table. What? Did you steal this? No. I mean, yes, but it's from what I already took. Already accounted for in the long list of crimes that'll be read out of the Huti Thaliam. Trenia, we only have it to keep up appearances with the humans around Beleth. Please, you can use that. We won't. Then why is it on your list of crimes? The tribe isn't angry about the gold. They're angry that I took something it wasn't mine to take. It would be the same if I took a shirt or a basket. I thought back to stories I'd read about criminals in other places. They're not gonna... They're not going to, like, cut off one of your hands or something if I don't give this back, are they? No. No, we're not barbarians. No, I suspect they'll have me pick herbs for the next few years without reprieve. 
Well, that makes it sound an awful lot like you're planning to stay. Will you do this for me? Fine. I tucked the crown into my coin purse, where it clinked against the few silvers I had left from working with Grint at the Eternal Soul. Thank you. This better not come back to bite me. I don't want to go through a hooty thalium too. Ha! My tribe, formally questioning a human for hours on end. Oh, I'd almost pay to see that. Well, maybe you already have. I patted my jangling coin purse. And then we sank once more into the awkward silence of not wanting to say goodbye. Eventually, I stepped forward and gave her a hug. I'll see you soon. Three days? That's the plan. It'll at least give us time for a few more walks in the woods when I get back. We let go of our hug and I turned towards the path. Well, hopefully not goodbye to you, Trenia. Hopefully not goodbye to you, too. And with that, I headed down the wooded path. I was nervous, and a little scared. It's the anxiety known to all who have willingly stepped away from the people and places they love in order to greet the unknown. And it seems like no matter how many times you walk down that path, the unknown still has a way of spooking you. I looked behind me to see if Trenia was still by the trees where we'd parted, hoping for a wave or a nod of encouragement. But she was gone. As I stepped further away from the elfwoods, I felt a sharp tingle on my forehead, where Moranga had blessed me two nights before, the energy of his protection fading, fading, gone. And the reality of what I was doing finally sank in. I was on my own again, off on an adventure with little clue of what I was doing. There was no one to rely on besides myself, and if things got dicey, it was up to me to figure it out. <sighs> I hadn't realized how much peace of mind traveling with Trenia had given me. Uncertainty is much less daunting if you're sharing it with someone else. At least I'd had Granbauer when I left Fribbleshire. He wasn't going to protect me from bandits, obviously, but he'd help me to feel safe and not alone. But along with this apprehension came excitement, a shucking of unwanted baggage and a lightness in looking forward once again. I was unbound and unbeholden to anyone. I could go wherever I wanted and do whatever I wanted. Oh my, <laughs> Whew. I got a bit of a head rush just thinking about it. Heck, I'd, I'd been able to get by well enough on my own before meeting Trenia, so by golly, I'd be able to do it again, if it came to that. Deep down, I was still utterly attached to the idea that she would leave her tribe and come with me. But for now, I relished in walking through the springtime woods on my own, free as the robins and crows that flew overhead. In fact, I'd barely gone a half a mile when I realized how happy I was to be out of Beleth. Absolutely, Beleth was beautiful. Absolutely. But it was also stifling. As I looked up at the clear blue sky outside of Herodelth, I realized I hadn't actually been able to see the sky in Beleth. The leaves and needles grew in so thick that light only came through in bursts and patches, and there was never a high place where I could get a total view of the landscape. So I never felt certain of where I was in context to the Lotharlene or to the borders of the forest. I was always beneath the canopy, always enclosed by the cavernous boughs of Beleth. It wasn't gloomy, so to speak, but it was certainly closed in. There was no wind that I could notice, no stirring beyond the flowing streams, and even the sense of mystery which had drawn me there to begin with. The mystery itself felt standoffish, as if you had to be worthy of its secrets, and if you weren't, well, then bad luck, buddy. Trenia was right. The storybooks were indeed mostly hogwash, and for the first time since entering Beleth, I allowed myself to feel the weight of that disappointment. Not just about the forest, but about elves themselves. I really thought things were going to be different. I hadn't expected to be swept up in a group hug by Trenia's family, but I figured some of the Nervanga would at least try to get to know me. 
Nah. I was tolerated, but clearly not accepted. And all because I was a human. <laughs> it made as much sense to hate me for being human as it did to hate someone for being a girl, or having dark skin, or having a limp, or being old, or disliking the smell of dandelions. The elves were remarkably diverse and accepting within their own community, but me, a human? <laughs> hated. Well, I hated their hate. All I did was hurt. Me and them. Yeah, hate hurts. That's it. Pfft, dumb. I walked at such a fast pace I was practically jogging, and I let my frustrations roll out with each stomping step. After an hour or so, I stopped for a rest beside a little creek and pulled out Hatha's map. Hatha's drawings were rough estimates, but with Trenia's help measuring out distances the night before, I at least had a general idea of where to search for Joe and Graham's hideout. Hatha had marked it west of Harrowdelth, and south of the main road that connected the village with Western Quib. It was far enough from Beleth that neither Trenia nor her kin had stumbled upon it, but close enough to Beleth to deter unwitting discovery from human passers-by. I planned to walk along the path for another half a mile or so, and then turn into the woods to begin my sweep. It might take all day, but based off this map and Hatha's descriptions, I was bound to find the hideout before nightfall. The only other time I'd done a sweep anything like this was when I was twelve years old. For some reason that defied all logic, Farmer Houghton's wife decided to wear her fine silver locket while plowing their fields one day. While she worked, the necklace fell off, duh, and landed somewhere in the dirt. Farmer Houghton managed to enlist the entire village in trying to find it. An heirloom, he said. My granny's heirloom! Of course, Farmer Houghton had the biggest fields in town, which meant we had to organize the search into methodical sweeps that scanned the fields in sections. Even with most of the town walking arm in arm in a line all day, it took us near to sundown to find Mrs. Houghton's precious silver locket. I had no village to help me search this time, but I had all their energy and more. Because I wasn't just searching for some dumb silver locket, I was searching for Grandbauer. There was no clear marker for when to head into the woods to begin my sweep, but eventually, I hit a point where my gut just told me to go. I took note of the sun's position and picked an especially tall evergreen tree on the hem of Beleth to be my main reference point. Its tippy top had a funky bend to it, as if it was peeking around a corner with its arms outstretched, waving, Hello! The image made me laugh, and I knew I'd remember it as I made my sweeps. And so it began. I walked to the west, parallel with Beleth, until I'd spanned a couple miles and then turned back. I walked all the way until I hit the little footpath from which I'd begun, and then turned west again for another round. It was slow work, but it was also exciting. At any moment, I could stumble across signs of the hideout. If I missed the signs, I would not only miss the hideout, I would risk revealing myself to anyone who might be guarding it. It felt like such a calm and simple task, just walking through the woods, and yet, if I screwed up, things could get real ugly real fast. When the sun was at its zenith, I stopped for water and ate the snack Trenia had packed for me. There was cheese, which Trenia told me wasn't actually cheese at all. It was some sort of nut paste that fermented in a similar way and gave a similar flavor. And there was fruit, some of those weird spiral pinky fruits, and some smaller green fruits that looked like damsons but tasted more like apples. She'd also packed me a strange gray loaf of bread, the ingredients of which I was not aware, and though it looked like bread, and though it felt like bread, it certainly very much was not bread. I hadn't seen any signs of farming or herding when I was in Beleth, so I felt sure the loaf wasn't made with normal grain. And then I remembered Theron joking about me not liking locust eyes, and I immediately spat out the bread I had in my mouth. Ugh! What, what if it was bugs? Bug bread? Ugh. 
It was actually rather tasty, and I was rather hungry. So I pretended it was made of magical forest pharaoh and ate a hearty piece. Shortly after my lunch, I found the first sign of people. A narrow tree trunk missing its tree, cut down by an axe and dragged off somewhere nearby. The cut looked old, years old maybe, but at least someone had been here at some point. Uh-huh. I chose to see it as a clue, and tread ever more careful as I advanced. I didn't see anything else for the rest of that round, but when I doubled back and came northward to the same position, I found more little stumps. Yes, someone had certainly been here. I was tempted to veer off my sweep pattern and follow the trail of stumps, but I decided to hold fast. I didn't want to blow my whole operation in case they turned out to be nothing more than signs of a renegade logger cutting down a few spare trees for winter. Another walk, another round, and sure enough, there were no more felled trees when I returned to the same area. But I didn't despair. The sun was still high. I had several hours yet before I'd need to call it a day and head to Harrowdelf. Two more rounds? Nothing. Up hills, around rocks. Nothing, nothing, nothing. My eyes grew tired from scouring every leaf for information. My ears grew weary from listening to every snapping stick. My focus grew lax from the sheer attentiveness required by the activity, and I grew worried that I wouldn't notice a sign at this point even if I walked right into it. Soon, I came across a sizable bulging hill. The woodlands in these parts were mostly flat, but I'd come across several such tours of chunky, risen earth during my search, and this one didn't seem much different. It jutted out of the ground like a spontaneous island, and was covered in thick green moss, lanky grass, and shimmering birch. The southern edge was a ragged cliff of weathered rock that rose some forty feet high. Several huge boulders rested at the base, as if the cliff had gradually fallen into cliffdom over many years of erosion. I took a wide sweep around the southern edge to eye the rocks and stones from a distance. For the first few steps, all seemed normal. Rocks and grass and mossy moss moss. Nothing worth stopping for. But then, I saw the distinct mark of a hoofprint in the dirt. And then another. There was a whole trail of horse hooves! And cart tracks! I whipped my head around to scan the area, hoping that the track makers weren't still nearby. I was completely exposed, what with the lack of shrubs and underbrush, so I instinctively crouched down, and now, if anyone saw me, it would look like I was taking a dump. But still, crouching felt safer. I took a quick look at my surroundings, and there was no one I could see. With all the grace of a newborn cow, I shuffled behind a shrubby hawthorn on my hands and knees, my heart racing. Oh my gosh! What if this was it? What if I'd actually found Joe and Graham's hideout? I mean, that's what I've been trying to do, but... Ah! I stayed as still as I possibly could for a few moments, listening. Listening. I heard the trill of a thrush and the chirpy threats of a territorial squirrel, but other than that, I heard nothing. I waited a few more minutes to make sure I heard nothing, and then I poked my head out from behind the hawthorn bush to examine the area. A quick glance at the tracks revealed that there was a path leading out from the woods and towards the cliff, which stopped beside a boulder larger than a haystack. In the center of a small glade, there was a ring of charred stones surrounding the remnants of a cook fire, with a couple of logs rolled up beside it for seating. How very campy, I thought. How very campy indeed. I looked all around the area from my hawthorn bush, and determined that the only way someone else could be nearby is if they were hiding behind a tree trunk, or one of the rocks by the cliff. I waited for another span of minutes, straining my eyes and ears, and then decided the coast was clear. I rose out from behind the hawthorn and tiptoed towards the tracks. 
The clearest marks were those of the horse and cart. It looked like the cart had been backed up and turned around, as evidenced by several angular ruts turning this way and that, and by two pairs of parallel lines indented in the path that led away from the campsite. Two sets of horse hooves seemed to further this idea, as there was a clear set leading both in and away. There were several different boot prints stamped into the dirt, but they were much lighter, and much more difficult to follow than the horse and cart. There was also something small in the dirt, another print, pressed solid in the mud, kind of like a... kind of like... Oh my gosh! Kind of like a goat! Sweet and little pointy butterfly wing prints stamped into the earth when they were headed towards the cliff! Instinctively I followed them, but then I remembered where I was. If this was indeed Joan Graham's hideout, of which I was growing more and more certain that it was, I needed to keep my wits about me. No quick motions, no hasty decisions. Nothing that would give the Norvanga more reason to call me hot blood like the rest of my kin. Carefully, oh so carefully, I crouched down and snuck over to the boulders beside the cliff. I paused there for a moment, listening again, listening and watching the surrounding woods. If anyone had noticed me, they were doing a heck of a good job at staying hidden. After another spell of observation, I peeked around the boulder and looked for more tracks. The horse prints stopped out in the small glade by the fire pit, but the goat tracks wove around the rocks and on towards the cliff. I couldn't clearly discern if there were footprints following the goat tracks, but there were enough patches of overturned moss that it seemed like some amount of careless traffic had come through. In fact, I saw signs of multiple trails heading towards the cliff, weaving around the rocks like little rills dumping into a river. On one of those trails, I saw goat prints heading away from the cliff. There wasn't very much space between these rocks and the cliff face, certainly not enough space to house a single traveler comfortably for the night, let alone a Joe and a Graham. So why were so many paths leading to it? Just to prove to myself I wasn't acting rashly, I forced myself to hunker down beside the boulder and listen for another few minutes. Still nothing but bird calls, and that same agitated squirrel. So, I slunk around the boulder, headed towards the cliff, and uh, uh, black. Uh, I walked into a spider web. Ooh, yuck. Sorry, spider. Oh, golly, that spiked my heart rate. Oh, yeah, and there was also a doorway. <gasps> a door! Behind the boulders! In the cliff! A cliff door! Oh, hop and hawthorn, this was it! The hideout! It had to be! But again, I paused. Careful, Allie. Careful. I pressed myself flat against the cliff and listened for voices that were stirring within. The opening was some six feet high, tall enough for most humans to walk through without crouching, and wide enough that the plump Joe and Graham wouldn't have had any trouble getting inside. Again, I heard absolutely nothing. No shuffling of feet or stirring of cloth. No sneezes, no breaths, no words. Between the complete absence of sound and the tracks leading both in and out, it really seemed like the hideout was empty. I wanted to go inside. If Granbauer had been here with Joe and Graham, I wanted to make sure he had indeed left in one piece. And if so, I wanted to see if there were any clues that told me where they were off to next. But safety first. I pulled my dagger out from its leather sheath and bent down to pick up a small stone from the ground. I prepared to throw the stone into the doorway, then realized I didn't want to be standing right by the opening in case someone somehow came out to investigate the sound. So, quiet as I could... I shuffled back to stand behind the biggest boulder blocking the doorway, and then tossed the stone over the top so that it clattered down the cliff face and dropped noisily before the doorway. There was no call of alarm, no exclamation of surprise. Again, 
Nothing. So, feeling 99% sure that the hideout was empty, I stepped around the boulder and looked into the doorway. A narrow tunnel led back beneath the cliff, and the doorway afforded me enough light to see a stony wall at the end. That was it? Just a little tunnel? I mean, I guess it could keep people out of the rain if they were camping, but that was a pretty pithy hideout. I took a step inside and paused. Whoa, whoa, whoa. This wasn't part of the plan. The plan was just to come here and scope things out so I could come back with information to share with Trenia. But that plan was hatched with the idea that Joe and Graham would still be here, or that there would be other defenses in their wake. So far, that didn't seem to be the case. They weren't here. Therefore, it would be silly to come this far and leave without taking a deeper look. What clues might be waiting inside? So I made an agreement with myself. If anything looked dangerous, if anything gave me even the slightest prickle of nerves, then I'd book it and head to Harrowdelf. But as long as things continued to seem safe, as they currently did, then I'd be fool not to go for it. So, dagger in hand, I walked into the cave. My shadow made it hard to see at first, but gradually my eyes adjusted to the darkness, and I made my way through the tunnel to the stony wall I'd seen from outside. But it wasn't the end, as I'd expected. The path turned to the left and led deeper into the cave. The ceiling rose, and though I couldn't see it, I could hear the largeness of the chamber beyond. Once more, I paused and waited, listening, looking, and heck, even smelling for signs of trouble around the bend. But once more, I found none, so I stepped further into the cave. There was barely any light, but I was able to make out the shape of a table, a chair, a pile of hay, and an unlit torch sitting in a rough iron sconce hammered into the wall. Hmm. It would be crucial to have light if I was hoping to gather any more clues. But it would be a dead giveaway if anything lurked within the cave. So, with my feet facing towards the exit, my legs tensed like springs and ready to run, I called out into the darkness. Hello? Still nothing. Yoo-hoo! Nope. Not a sound. No one's here. No? Anyone at all? Hello? I'm gonna steal your stuff! Hello? Well, that's good enough for me. Having now reached 100% certainty about the cave's vacancy, I took the torch from the sconce and crouched down with it in the tunnel. I shrugged off my backpack to pull out the flint and steel Trenny had let me borrow, and struck them together until I had enough sparks to light the torch. It caught in a bright orange flame, and I leaned it against the wall as I repacked my flint and steel. Then, I held the torch out before me and walked into the chamber. I saw fully now the table, chair, and pile of hay I'd seen before, as well as several barrels and boxes lining the walls. The cave was indeed empty of inhabitants, and I let out a breath of relief. I sheathed my dagger and approached the table. There were papers and maps in a neat pile in the middle of the desk, and I investigated them one by one. One of the maps detailed the Kingdom of Quib, the main kingdom of the kingdoms of Quib, from which Queen Hyla and King Morrow oversaw all of the kingdoms from their high court at Haventown. Or so it was said. Frebblesher was in the southern reaches of the Kingdom of Quib, which stretched all the way west towards the sea, but other than the annoying annual taxes, the monarchy had little impact on our day-to-day -day life. I was surprised to see Fribbleshire marked on the paper at all. We were so puny. But we weren't on the next map I picked up, which showed all the kingdoms of Quib, from Avlantia in the north to the Great Forest in the south. <laughs> Gee, it sure made me feel small. And then I felt smaller still when I pulled out the next map, which showed all of the land of lore, of which the kingdoms of Quib were but a part. Whew, 
The world was so big, and I'd barely seen any of it. I took a few minutes to pour over the maps. There weren't many accurate maps to be had in small villages like Fribbleshire, and I had always loved seeing how the land was designed. But unfortunately, none of the maps had indications of where other hideouts might be. There were no markings or notes of any kind. Darn. The next paper I picked up was an inventory. A list of what was in all the boxes and barrels lined up against the wall, I figured. Shirts and wine and weapons and spices. Fanciful bits of finery that could sell for a pretty price in any major city. But no mention of goats. Drats. I turned away from the table and raised my torch to look around the room. And then I saw something that excited me so much I nearly popped out of my skin. Poop. Goat poop. I rushed over to it, knelt down, and picked up a pellet in my fingers. It was still soft, which meant it was fairly fresh. Which meant Grand Bower was here recently! Not more than a couple days ago! Woo! Oh, what a relief! Grand Bower was alive! And he was near! Whoa! Oh, heck, with Trenia's help soul-sending, we would have no problem tracking him down when she... Well, if she decided to come with me. Well, no matter what, it was a balm to the heart to know Grand Bower was so recently safe and sound. <sighs> oh, it probably wouldn't yield anything useful, but I figured I might as well poke through the boxes and barrels while I was there. The contents might not be clues to me, but perhaps Trenia would see a pattern when I got back to Beleth and shared all my news with her. I grabbed the inventory off the table, figuring it couldn't hurt to have a written piece of evidence, and I stuffed the maps into my backpack, figuring it was but a small piece of justice to take something from Joe and Graham. As I approached the wall of goods, I noticed a strange marking carved into the wall at chest height. Well, not carved, as it were, but almost burned, as if a hot piece of iron had carved a symbol into wax. But the wall wasn't wax, of course. It was stone. Huh. I leaned over some stacked boxes to get a closer look at the engraving, and saw it was a decorative circular emblem about the size of my palm. Triangles radiated out from the circle, almost like a childish drawing of the sun, and inside the circle were several strange looping scratches that I could only assume was a type of writing. Hmm. So, Joe and Graham were into cave art. Cool. Whatever floated their boat, I guess. Anyways, I reached out to pick up and remove the lid from the box beneath the drawing. It wasn't nailed down or anything, just sitting loose, so it came away easily when I lifted it off the box. But then something happened that I did not intend. My arm caught on fire. Not from my torch, which I held aloft with my other hand. No, I had no idea how, but, but somehow my entire right forearm was ablaze. The sleeve of my shirt sizzled in an instant, and I screamed from the sudden and surprising pain. I dropped the torch and tried to pat out the flames with my left hand, but the flames climbed higher, above my elbow, threatening to engulf my shoulder. The engraving on the wall now glowed a hot orange red. Was this... Was this magic? I flailed about wildly, and in my panic, I stumbled backwards, and I felt my calf hit something that felt like a strand of yarn. I heard a loud click from above, like a latch giving way under extreme pressure, and I looked up to see a cascade of stones pouring down from the ceiling. I covered my head with my arms, the right of which was still on fire, and fell to the ground as the weight of the stones pummeled my back, my shoulders, my arms, my head, my... Thanks for listening to Alley Odds and the Alley Odds Squad. I'm Leona Cara, and I'm going to get the heck out of the way so you can listen to the next episode, Chapter 11 of Broken Things. Go! Oh, what's going to happen? Mm-hmm.